From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. So I was seven years old or so and joined the Neighborhood Soccer League. And my dad got into a conversation with a a journalist uh, named David Anderson. He had met casually. And David starts up a conversation with my father about whether he has a spiritual life and would he like to give it a try? Um, Or the exact words, I lost him to memory and time. But that was how it started. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to welcome to the show Celeste Kennel-Shank. She's a bivocational pastor and journalist based in Chicago. She's a graduate of the Washington, D.C. public school system, Goshen College, the Medill School of Journalism, and the University of Chicago Divinity School. Her writing has appeared in The Christian Century, Sojourners, and The Washington Post, among other publications. Today we're talking about her recent book, What You Sow is a Bear Seed, a Countercultural Christian community during five decades of change. Celeste Kennelshank, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you. So today we're going to be talking about your experience in an intentional Christian community called the Community of Christ based in Washington, D.C. And in the course of our conversation, my plan is that we're going to talk about how the community developed what it was like to be in the community, and then eventually how the community decided to lay down its ministry. So that's the sweep of where we're heading. In order to start that out, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the origins of this community. And granted, it it started before you got there. So tell us a little bit about what you discovered as you were writing your book, What You Sow is a Bear Seed. Right, that the community of Christ started uh, well before I was born even, uh, let alone when my family joined when I was uh, seven years old. The community of Christ came out of the period, uh, the post-World War II period, in which there was a lot of ferment in the church and a lot of opening up of institutions in the Catholic Church in the early 60s. There was Vatican II. In a lot of Protestant churches, there were what were called often experimental ministries. Some people liked that title and others didn't especially in urban areas. And the community of Christ was one of them. So even as a lot of churches were leaving the inner city for the suburbs at that time, and white flight especially was pronounced in Washington, D.C., a couple, John and Mary Schramm, decided to move into the city from the suburbs. John was an ordained Lutheran pastor. He decided to leave the church he had planted in Annandale, Virginia, and go into the city. And John and Mary, as the years went on, developed a model that they had started with that had two central principles. 
One was the commitment to a one square mile parish model and to all of the people within that parish and really embracing what a lot of Catholic churches were already doing and had been doing and continue to do. But they embraced a particular neighborhood in D.C. called DuPont Circle. And then they also had this idea that was from uh, a lot of from the influence of the Church of the Savior, which is a nearby congregation in Washington, D.C., of letting the gifts of the people who join the community shape the ministry of the community rather than the leadership, the governing bodies, setting the goals and the mission, having the mission and the ministry be drawn from the gifts of the people. And the Community of Christ and John and Mary Schramm took that a step further and really emphasized that everyone can have a dream and that it was part of what the community did as ministry collectively to help people discern if their dream could become a reality and how to do that. And so they had a number of collective ministries, what, what some of them, what we would now call social enterprise, that grew out of that vision of the gifts and dreams of the people who made up the community of Christ. I really am grateful for the capaciousness of that answer, and there are some things that I want to now dig deeper into. So first of all, you mentioned that John and Mary Schramm came out of the Lutheran tradition, but my listeners, our listeners need to understand this was not specifically a Lutheran church, even though during its its existence, it was very much under the care of the Lutheran church. It was highly eclectic in how it approached its theology and its ministry. Now, that's my phrasing, not yours. When I phrase it that way, does that sound right? And if not, please feel free to correct me. But if that does sound right, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yes. So it it is uh, very much the case that the community of Christ was rooted in a particular expression of Lutheranism, what was then the American Lutheran Church which merged to to become uh, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America uh, now. Uh, But it was not solely Lutheran, and its goal was not to be an expression of Lutheranism in DuPont Circle. So John and Mary were very much formed by that tradition, and I talk about that in various ways in the book, but he was never envisioned to be limited to that. One of the other pieces of that post-World War II era that I mentioned was as people in the midst of the war, for those who who went to Europe and to the Pacific, and also at home, people started to make more relationships ecumenically and interface relationships, and they started to get to know their their neighbors. And several people who were part of the community of Christ described growing up in the 40s and early 50s, thinking of Protestants, thinking of Catholics as others, but then as that era continued that people were getting to know other people from across those, what were previously religious boundaries. So the community of Christ used the word ecumenical and embraced the word ecumenical. Uh, I know that's not a common word today, even among Christians, but it was this notion that there is a Christian unity that exists already that surpasses all of the denominational and, and tradition Um, differences that we have. And the community of Christ very much embraced being a multi-denominational, so not non-denominational, but multi-denominational, multi-tradition view of Christianity. And also, you you mentioned the word eclectic. Certainly, 
the community of Christ was made up by some really of some really interesting characters. Even though this is a, a biography and a work a solely of nonfiction, I really did think of each of the people I wrote about as as though they were a character I was developing through true uh, information from their lives. But uh, they were an eclectic bunch, to be sure. I really like that phrasing that you just gave us. It was not non-denominational. It was multi-denominational. My impression from reading your book, What You Sow is a Bear Seed, and I should say, this is as much a, an archive history as it is an oral history. You went and you interviewed people who had been involved in the ministry from its beginnings, people who had joined mid-course. So it's a really thorough examination of what this community of Christ meant to its various participants. But that was one thing that struck me was it was almost as if everyone who participated brought the things that worked the best for them from their various Christian traditions, and even in some cases fringe or non-Christian traditions. And they, they found ways to weave this together into a tapestry of community. As I characterize it that way, have I got it right? Is there something that I'm missing that you would correct? I think that's accurate. It was a group of people who were longing for something uh, in their lives that was, in a sense, a continuation of what most of them had grown up with, but was in other ways, a departure, not a rejection of organized religion per se, but a desire for life together and a life together that included worship and a deeper connection beyond just Sundays. Well, and as we begin to build this picture for our listeners of the community of Christ, you mentioned John and Mary Schramm. There were other personalities that were part of the beginning of this community. I wonder if you could tell us about just a couple more of them and how they helped to shape this eclectic mosaic of the community of Christ. Absolutely. First person I want to mention is Dora Kundakjon Johnson, who was one of the earliest members, although no one can remember exactly when she joined, but certainly in the first year. And she was a linguistics scholar and activist. And there were a number of people from the place where she worked, which was called the Center for Applied Linguistics. And uh, they all joined the community within the first year, four of them from this tiny nonprofit. And Dora became one of the core people from that first year through to 2012. And she was someone who in some ways, more so than John and Mary, shaped the community of Christ and became the central person. People in the community of Christ, because they did have varying levels of discomfort with organized religion, so they certainly weren't comfortable with the word evangelism. And yet Dora was an evangelist for the community. She invited everyone she knew who might be interested. And she also was someone who had a particular way of caring about people that really drew them in and a particular way of listening to people and listening to them with both love and challenge. And that was something that really drew people into relationship in the community. So Dora was originally, so she was Armenian by ethnicity and the daughter of survivors of the Armenian genocide and grew up in what is now Lebanon and came to the United States in the late 1950s and developed convictions around racial justice and joined the 
activity of the civil rights movement in Kentucky, where she was going to college, and then eventually made her way to D.C. And she was someone who had a really deep faith and also a really deep love of people around her and a, a deep desire to make the world a better place. You know, so the a little bit cliched to say it that way, but certainly there's just she had a commitment to do justice in the world that surpassed most people I have met in my life. Uh, another really important lay leader uh, was David Anderson. He is a, a journalist as well as as from a Lutheran background, a lay leader. But he joined the community also early on and became one of the central people shaping the direction that it took and emphasizing really looking, both of them really emphasized looking at what a community is. Then as now people uh, use the word community sometimes quite casually and, and the community sometimes, the community of Christ sometimes went a little bit too far in the other direction. There is in the archives, as you mentioned, where I did a lot of research, there were some times when it felt a lot like uh, overthinking and hand-wringing about what community is. But at the core there, I really do appreciate the intentionality and the thoughtfulness that they had in what it meant to weave their lives together in the ways that they were, especially in the city where there's a lot of transience. Well, and you mentioned the city, and uh, there in Washington, D.C., you mentioned that they were adjacent to DuPont Circle. And one of the things that struck me about this uh, community of Christ was when they were intentionally going to the heart of the city, they were going to an area that was economically depressed and had largely been gutted by white flight. But they stayed decade after decade long enough to see a turn in the neighborhoods and actually a gentrification begin to happen. And as we're moving towards our first break, I wonder if you could also paint that picture for us. How did that shift in demographics affect the church and how did the church affect that shift in demographics? Sure. Well, so I just I want to um, just tweak a little bit um, that description. So DuPont Circle was an economically and racially diverse neighborhood in 1965. It had seen uh, a lot of economic changes from being uh, a very wealthy neighborhood in the Gilded Age to having a lot of people uh, sell those homes and leave around more like World War I. So by 1965, it wasn't necessarily experiencing white flight so much as it was the question of the state of the buildings that people were living in, if that makes any sense. D.C. also had for decades a major social issue was alley dwellings. The DuPont Circle was still a place that had some of that in 1965, uh, even as reformers were working to, to change that. So people living in temporary dwellings in alleys. And so in DuPont Circle, you had you would have, you know, some overcrowding in apartments and you know, poor families would be living often in overcrowded conditions and, and with negligent landlords. But then you did also have some that economic diversity came from some people like the Community of Christ landlady who owned several buildings and she kept those up better. So there was a mix of people. DuPont Circle then became gentrified, actually starting not long after the community got there. There were a number of large high-rise apartment buildings that went up, they, those started to be marketed as luxury dwellings. 
this process of neighborhood change is, uh, is fairly gradual, but looking back, we can see how astonishing the changes were. The DuPont Circle is now, for any listeners familiar with D.C., certainly would think of DuPont Circle as one of the wealthier parts of the city as it is now. But at that time, it was a really diverse area in all of the possible ways. Um, it also had a lot of embassies. So there was a fairly large international and diplomatic community, a lot of students as well, uh, because of its proximity to George Washington University and not too far away from Georgetown. It was more Mount Pleasant that that had experienced a lot of white flight, but I imagine we'll get to that later. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Celeste Kennel-Shank. She's a bivocational pastor and journalist based in Chicago. She's a graduate of the Washington, D.C. Public Schools, Goshen College, the Medill School of Journalism, and the University of Chicago Divinity School. Today we're talking about her recent book, What You Sow is a Bear Seed, a Countercultural Christian Community During Five Decades of Change. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find more than 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with Celeste Kennel-Shank. She's a bivocational pastor and journalist based in Chicago. She's a graduate of the, of the Washington, D.C. public school system, Goshen College, the Medill School of Journalism, and the University of Chicago Divinity School. Her writing has appeared in the Christian Century, Sojourners, and the Washington Post, among many other publications. Today we're talking about her recent book, What You Sow is a Bear Seed, a countercultural Christian community during five decades of change. Well, during the first part of our conversation, we set the stage of this community, the community of Christ there in the Washington, D.C. area. And part of the reason why you wrote your book, What You Sow is a Bear Seed, about this community is because you and your family were involved in it. And I wonder if you can begin to tell us that part of the story. How did you and your family come to be a part of this community? I grew up in a neighborhood called Mount Pleasant in Washington, D.C. My parents had lived there before I was born, starting in the 70s. And when I came along in 1983, they were not involved in a religious community at all. They had both grown up plain dressing Mennonite and had moved away from that uh, in some ways and continued to embrace the core values which they raised me with. But they also were not attending any church at that time. After I was born, and as, as is often the case for many parents, they started to reevaluate that uh, when they have children. We would occasionally go to the All Souls Unitarian Church, which is there in Mount Pleasant as well, or on, on the border of Mount Pleasant and adjacent neighborhoods, and is known for its long history of, of social activism. 
So we tried that out, but my parents didn't feel drawn in. And then as I was seven years old or so and joined the neighborhood soccer league, and my dad got into a conversation with a a journalist uh, named David Anderson he had met casually, who uh, was a core lay leader in the community of Christ uh, in Mount Pleasant at that point. We were talking before how it started in DuPont Circle, but it moved in 1974 to Mount Pleasant, to my home neighborhood, and was on the main stretch there of Mount Pleasant Street. So my father and David are standing on the sidelines watching us kiddies run around on the soccer field and chase the ball. And David starts up a conversation with my father about whether he has a spiritual life and would he like to give it a try? Um, or the exact words are lost to, to memory and time, but that was how it begun. The Community of Christ building didn't necessarily look like a church. So I, I don't think my parents thought of that as a church building as most other families in the neighborhood did not. But they decided to try visiting and were drawn in. Uh, so that was 1990. And I was uh, an old enough child to remember those early visits, but still young enough that the the bulk of my spiritual formation took place in the community of Christ. And that was uh, the definitive experience of my childhood faith. Well, and you mentioned that your family had a tradition of its own, plain dressing Mennonite. I wonder if you could briefly tell my listeners what that means. Sure. So, so there are lots of different kinds of Mennonites. I am now a pastor affiliated with Mennonite Church USA, which is the most mainstream Mennonite denomination. And Mennonites, of course, are under the umbrella of Anna Baptist. So Amish and Hutterites and Brethren in Christ being some of the other groups. And then there are manifold varieties of Mennonites as well. Uh, so I use the term plain dressing. I, I started doing that when I worked for a publication called Mennonite Weekly Review to distinguish between Mennonites like me who live in an apartment in the city and wear the clothes that my neighbors wear and so forth and uh, Mennonites who live in areas uh, like my grandparents did, where they're not necessarily only Mennonite communities, but that are substantially Mennonite and dressed in a really distinctive way. The way that many people envision a Mennonite sometimes, if they have any sense of that, especially in a U.S. context, if they have a sense of Mennonites at all, they're probably envisioning what I called plain dressing Mennonites. And that's how my parents grew up in the 1950s and 1960s in Southern Pennsylvania, that my grandfather was a Mennonite pastor. My one grandfather was, the other was a carpenter. So very close to Jesus on both sides. And that was the context my parents grew up in. And they chose in their 20s to move to inner city Washington, D.C. and uh, make their lives there. Well, and this again reflects, I think, the eclecticism that we've already begun to talk about in the community of Christ. So your parents came out of this tradition. They were not necessarily practicing at the time. And they met this person that you introduced to us in the first segment, David Anderson, who was one of the core key members there in the early years of the community of Christ. And so they were invited into this community as a place to explore and practice and deepen their spiritual journey. And I wonder if you could tell my listeners, what did they carry with them from their Mennonite tradition? What did you carry with yourself from your Mennonite tradition? 
And what did they abandon as they moved into this community? Hmm. I love the way you put that. Uh, so two pieces that my father said in an interview about why he joined the community of Christ were the commitment to peace and justice. My father uh, was a peace activist and an organizer, a community organizer, and he worked in the setting in Washington, D.C., especially for the prevention of war and the, the use of peaceful methods of resolving conflict. And uh, my mother also was, a, she was the teacher um, before retirement, but also very supportive of those causes. And we went to a lot of demonstrations as one does of a certain political inclination in D.C. because there's a demonstration every weekend. And so the community of Christ was also very much about a peace witness from its early years. So we talked about how the the couple who started the community of Christ, John and Mary Schramm, grew up with the Lutheran tradition and with the just war tradition. But they themselves started to question that, especially in the Vietnam era. So that was important to the community of Christ from early early on was a peace witness. And so they, my parents found that in the community of Christ. And then the other emphasis was that life together. Mennonites are known sometimes for a more isolated or sectarian version of community at times. But at the core there, even in those communities in rural areas, there is a, a really beautiful aspect of community that is countercultural to the vision of the good life that's presented to us, especially in a North American context of the nuclear families living separately, each in their own discrete home and in some contexts with the houses very far apart and just the opposite of interweaving your life with that of other people, especially other people to whom you're not biologically related, but who you are related to by other bonds of geographic proximity, bonds of faith, and for the community of Christ and for the way my parents grew up, you know, the being Christian was the most core identity. Yeah, my grandmother would say that to me sometimes, that whatever culture or background people were from, that wasn't as important to her as whether or not people were Christian as the measure of that person and what the character of the relationship with that person. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Celeste Kennel-Shank. We're talking about her recent book, What You Sow is a Bare Seed, a countercultural Christian community during five decades of change. You were just talking about what your family brought into the community of Christ from their Mennonite traditions, but I wonder if you could now tell us about some of the things that your family left behind as they entered the community of Christ. Yes, my family, like many others in the community, had come from a more strict upbringing than what they wanted for themselves and for those who were parents, what they wanted for their children. So what my parents left behind was a certain uh, strictness, even at times authoritarianism that was present in some parts of their religious upbringing. And that was another way that they fit in so well into the community of Christ is that was the experience that a lot of other people had as well of whether it was people coming out as gay or lesbian, whether it was women who were finding their calling to speak and lead in the church, 
For others, it was, you know, a first marriage that didn't last and feeling a lot of judgment from the church of their childhood around divorce and becoming remarried. Often in those cases, you know, the second marriage then lasted for many decades. So they're, uh, everyone in their own way, or most of the core lay leaders in their own way, were coming from a place of more strict religion and a religion that they experienced in many cases as wounding. And so for my mother specifically, the the ways that Mennonites enforce plain dress for women and do not allow women in leadership in the church beyond song instruction, song leading, that especially then, but in some Mennonite churches still today, that was a source of wounding for her and something that she wanted. She wanted a church where all could freely participate. And that was something that my parents found in the community of Christ. And as we're thinking about this, uh, as your family was moving into this community that was founded from the Lutheran church, but was not limited to Lutheran theology and Lutheran practices, but instead was welcoming and building itself from the various practices from across the, po- the Protestant traditions, but also the Catholic traditions uh, and Eastern Orthodox traditions. I'm wondering if you noticed anything that the community of Christ began to adopt from your family's practices, or was there anything that you noticed in, in terms of how the, the arrival of your family into this community helped to shape the community of Christ moving forward? So one, one of the gifts that my parents brought that was really embraced in the community was Mennonites have a particular style of singing that some Mennonite communities, such as the ones where my parents grew up, sing in four-part harmony. And so my father had a wonderful baritone voice and he played guitar and he got involved pretty quickly with music in the community. And music in the community of Christ was led by guitar and also from the side of the community. So there, the community met in the central meeting space of a community center that it owned in Mount Pleasant, which is a neighborhood in Washington, D.C. And the music leaders were a one side of the circle. So they weren't up front and standing and doing the bulk of the singing as happened in and as happens in many congregations, but they were really leading from within that gathered body. And and that was especially due to the leadership of Margaret Ann Hoven. And so she and my father uh, became a musical duo and so they played music in the community of Christ. And my father sang harmony uh, with Margaret. They also played some concerts around town as Margaret and the bald guy. So that was a way that our Mennonite tradition, my parents' Mennonite background, came into the community of Christ. And as I said a few moments ago, certainly the peace witness was already present. I think perhaps what was another thing that my parents brought was being part of a tradition that had practiced what was then called a peace witness, but some in Mennonite theology, it's usually called non-resistance, but the Refusal to participate in military action, that is something that has been part of Mennonite theology, Anabaptist theology from the beginning, 500 years ago. So that was something that enriched the community's peace witness to have two people from this background where this wasn't a new conclusion people arrived at in the Vietnam era or a provisional conclusion based on 
the nature of a particular war, but to have that witness going back centuries enrich the community's ecumenical, multi-denominational life together. Well, I, I really appreciate your speaking personally about the ways in which your family interfaced with the community of Christ. I now want to broaden the view a little bit because we've been talking about how the community of Christ was eclectic. It brought in many different traditions, and, and so it was across the Christian spectrum and a mix of different theologies, different approaches, with some common points, like you mentioned, the sort of peace and justice anchor that really was there and a, a commitment to, to racial justice. But you also make an observation in your book, What You Sow is a Bare Seed. You say, not every member of the, the community of Christ was on the same page politically, but they were usually in the same chapter. And I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit and tell us what that means and how that worked in practice for the community. Sure. So as, as is the case for many people in the District of Columbia, uh, there is a level of engagement with politics that, that I haven't found really anywhere else that I've lived or spent a lot of time in. And part of that is a result of so many people's jobs, you know, work and for many of them, vocation being tied to whether it is um, government work, uh, in particular administrations or career government agency work, or people like my father who did uh, organizing for nonprofit, nonpartisan organizing and, and advocacy. And that it really just shapes so many people's lives in the community. So in, in Washington, D.C. and in the community of Christ and was no exception. If anything, it was more the case um, that a lot of people were very involved in activism. And most of those folks, as is also generally true in D.C., most of those folks were left of center politically. The community, in addition, had a bias against war, against violent intervention, military intervention. But that didn't mean that everyone has exactly the same stance in terms of whether or not it was appropriate for the government ever to engage in, in military intervention. Um, so where that came to a head in the community was after uh, September 11th, 2001. And some of the people who still had that general bias against war, did think that in this particular case, it was appropriate for the U.S. to respond to um, an attack on U.S. land with, with military action abroad. And that was something that provoked a lot of, of debate in, in the community and even at some level threatened some longstanding relationships. But well, why, part of why I tell that story is because people decided the relationships were ultimately more important to them. How people didn't walk away from those relationships because they had even a fairly large disagreement about the appropriate response to September 11th. Um, and I think that really speaks to the depths of those relationships that people, and also in relationships that were built with political activism, but also with life together. Aside from that, I think both both pieces were important. 
These are people who had protested apartheid in South Africa together. They had protested previous military actions abroad. They had protested for better policies uh, to end poverty. They had engaged politically together, but also they had been in each other's homes and they had rocked each other's children to sleep. And these are people who shared the Eucharist together every week and they ultimately were able to overcome that disagreement from within the same piece of the political spectrum, as I, you highlighted, I said, in the same chapter of, of the book. But, but it turns out that even there, there can be some pretty stark differences in how people approach a particular question. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Celeste Kennel-Shank. She's a bivocational pastor and journalist based in Chicago. She's a graduate of the Washington, D.C. public school system, Goshen College, the Medill School of Journalism, and the University of Chicago Divinity School. Today, we're talking about her recent book, What You Sow is a Bear Seed, a Countercultural Christian Community During Five Decades of Change. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find more than 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with Celeste Kennel-Shank. She's a bivocational pastor and journalist in Chicago. She's a graduate of the Washington, D.C. public school system, Goshen College, the Medill School of Journalism, and the University of Chicago Divinity School. Her writing has appeared in The Christian Century, Sojourners, The Washington Post, and many other publications. We're talking today about her recent book, What You Sow is a Bear Seed, a countercultural Christian community during five decades of change. So, in the last two segments, we have been painting the picture of how this community, the community of Christ in Washington, D.C., this multi-denominational community that was founded with a sort of peace and justice anchor, how it came to be. And we talked about how your family came to be involved in the community of Christ. Second, I wonder if you could paint for us the picture, what was the community of Christ like in its full blossom, when it was fully realizing its ministries, when it was fully ingrained in the community, what was that like to observe? What was that like to be a part of? It was a place where Christian love and the bonds of love were really, truly strong and not merely stated or sung about or praised when the reality was a mess below the surface. People were truly themselves and their messy selves in the community. And it was the place where I learned what unconditional love is. It was the place where you know, as kids, which is so I was a child during the that community in full blossom those years, or at least some of those years. And it was a place where there wasn't that strictness many of our parents had grown up with. We could ask questions. We could literally roam around the building. We had a community center called the Casa. It had been a restaurant at one point. It was at one point a stately private residence. So it had those kinds of 
uh, staircases and ways for what were initially the servants of the wealthy family to get up and down. And then it was for the restaurant to go from the storage in the basement up to the dining room. And then when we were kids, those became places to have epic games of tag and hide and seek. And But then also we were present in worship with our parents. There wasn't necessarily a robust children's education program, but it did mean that we were exposed to a lot. And so I remember just watching the adults' reactions to things, even when I didn't understand them, I was absorbing what the life of faith looked like for them. So in that central meeting room of the community center, we met on folding chairs and there was one of one bank of windows that were all colored glass. So they didn't have any images in them, but they were stained glass in that sense. And they would cast light into the central meeting space. But that was the only thing that really looked like a church in the space for the community met. And so it just felt like a really big living room in some ways. And it, it had that warmth and that intimacy for people. A lot of the interviews I did with community members, people mentioned uh, the, sh- the time for sharing of joys and concerns, which especially since the community during the time that I was part of it was not larger than about 40 people on a Sunday and often smaller than that. There was a lot of intimacy. It was more like small group sharing. So people would share just really deeply and richly from their lives and go through times of crisis together and go through heartache together and share that with each other and and know that they would be held and cared for and that no one would be abandoned and it is just it was in so many ways I use the word countercultural in the subtitle because it's it was in so many ways counter to the dominant culture where you're supposed to put on a pretty nice face when you go out into the world, even into a church, that you're supposed to pretend that you have it all together. And the community of Christ was a place where we could be fully ourselves and not pretend to have it all together. We could be a mess and know that we were still loved, which is a reflection of divine love, but that we all experience all too seldom. Well, and you've mentioned now the sort of unconventional worship space that felt more like a living room than a traditional church. And you mentioned earlier in our conversation that there really was not uh, a bent towards evangelism in the traditional sense, but the Community of Christ did do outreach. And I'm thinking in particular two sort of entrepreneurial methods of outreach where they affiliated themselves with and helped to support two different stores that were associated with the community. But one of the things that struck me in your book, What You Sow is a Bear Seed, is that customers would come in oftentimes having no idea that they were in a religious store when they were shopping there. And I, I wonder if you could tell us about that aspect of the community. So that those were two outgrowths in the first 15 years of the community's vision of ministry and mission coming from the gifts and the dreams of the people who made up the community rather than being preset by the leadership or the pastor. So one of the social enterprise, uh, they, they were both businesses, both of them paid taxes. That was actually something that was important to them, that they paid taxes. They weren't nonprofits, um, but they also 
were not making profits. <laughs> uh, so they paid their taxes and they paid their staff and they bought more inventory. Uh, but so one of those businesses was called the Third Day Plant Shop. And that was the dream of a particular community member named Anna Mae Patterson, who believes that we don't have enough access to nature in our lives in the city often. And so she had a plant shop selling indoor indoor plants. They're often tropical plants that we think of as they are common house plants. But they had a, a kid's corner. They had you know community programs and education. And the staff um, were a, a close-knit group of people. And so even the, so the name was drawn from the, the third day of creation when God creates plants. And also the third day on which Jesus rose. So resurrection and new life and the restoration of life that we see so often displayed in in plants. And so that was one of the communities, two businesses, two social enterprise ministries. The other was the Sign of Jonah bookstore. And that had more explicitly religious stock. Neither of them really pushed people on attending worship at the community of Christ, but they were more, one of the ways that the community of Christ lived out its other founding principle, the square mile parish model, the serving people among their neighbors through those businesses, through those ministries, and not necessarily doing it to grow in numbers. Although some people did first encounter the community through uh, mainly the sign of Jonah and then through conversation in the store learned about the community and one of those people ended up becoming one of the longest time members, John Stewart. And it all started with a conversation at the Sign of Jonah bookstore and religious art shop. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Celeste Kennel-Shank. She's a bivocational pastor and journalist in Chicago. She's a graduate of the Washington, D.C. public school system, Goshen College, the Medill School of Journalism, and the University of Chicago Divinity School. Today we're talking about her recent book, What You Sow is a Bear Seed, a countercultural Christian community during five decades of change. One of the things that struck me the most about your book, What You Sow is a Bear Seed, was the story that you tell of when the community of Christ discerned that it was time to end their ministry, shut their doors, and let their assets go to benefit the community. And I wonder, I've never actually encountered such a, an account of an institution deciding that it had finished its mission. And I was so taken with that. I wish that more institutions would do that and that we could hear more stories of this. I wonder if you would share a little bit with my listeners about how the community of Christ went through this process? So the community of Christ was never very large. It never, it never exceeded what by most measurements I've seen would be called a medium-sized church. It was n- never, even at its numerical height, more so, more than 80, 90 people. But it had come to a time where there were, fewer members. But as I've thought about this, how to tell this story, how to give this account of discernment, one of the things that became really clear to me and that I want to share with others who 
may be part of institutions that have closed or are thinking about closing is I don't believe there's any such thing as a too small church or a too small institution, religious body. I think it's a question of what programs that group of people can sustain, what energy they have, what passion they have, and how they want to use their gifts in the world and their time. So there are a lot of institutions out there that need to right-size their programs, but they don't necessarily need to close. For the community of Christ, what I heard from the people who were still living in D.C., in the D.C. area, at the time that the community was winding down, was that they wanted to try being part of larger communities and seeing what it was like to have the kinds, be part of the kinds of programs that a church that has 100, 200 people can sustain. And they had put so much energy, some of them for decades, into the community of Christ. And a lot of them were ready for a new season and were ready to put that time and energy elsewhere. So again, it wasn't I don't look at that group of people and think there were too few of them and they weren't willing to change in a way that they could have grown. And and some of it is demographic change. It, certainly it it is the case now that it's harder for people oh, in my age, just 40 and younger, to make time in our lives for engagement in a religious community. But that's not the whole story. I think a lot of it was it's people just being ready to say, we fulfilled what we set out to do and, and what the community of Christ set out to do. And so what they did at that point when they discerned that they were ready to end their time as a formal body, of course, their relationships continue to this day. But... The first thing they did beyond uh, filing the necessary paperwork was they had engaged in a process um, of doing a request for proposals for different of their nonprofit partners for someone who they would transfer the building to. So they had taken out an additional mortgage to do some repairs on the building. But what they were offering was uh, the property which was is a large house you know it's it's nestled among storefronts on Mount Pleasant Street the main commercial stretch in the Mount Pleasant neighborhood of Washington DC but it was in, originally built as you know the home of a wealthy family um and so it's a multi-level building and they were offering it for the new owner to pay less than $100,000 to cover the existing mortgage and clothing costs and associated taxes. And that building was valued at that time at more than a million dollars, possibly more than two million. So they engaged in a really thoughtful process of interviewing and receiving proposals and interviewing different partners for ministry. And they ultimately chose a federally qualified health center called La Clinica del Pueblo that serves especially Spanish speakers, people who have come from Latin America to Mount Pleasant, uh, which had and and has a, a large Spanish-speaking population. And so the building today is still called La Casa, 
the house as as it has been for many many decades preceding the community of Christ, and it now houses health education and action programs of La Clinica del Pueblo. I've mentioned at several points as I've been introducing you that you are a bivocational pastor. You work as a journalist. You also work as a pastor. I'm wondering, if you're willing, I would love to hear how your experience with the community of Christ growing up has helped to shape your thoughts about your ministry and your work in the pastorate today. Growing up in the community of Christ helped me to see what faith, specifically Christian faith, but not limited to it, can really be beyond the institutional trappings. Which is not to say that those things are bad. I Part of my ministry is on the west side of Chicago with a garden outreach ministry, and we are attached to a church that has a building that I am very fond of and have helped to fundraise to keep open. So I'm not I'm not uh, denigrating church buildings or any kind of religious buildings by any means. Um, But at the same time, I hear a lot from my colleagues as well that not only can things like those buildings or the expectations of certain traditions become a bit of a... They they take a lot of time and energy and sometimes my colleagues in ministry... Of, of all denominations, we'll talk about how difficult building maintenance is and buildings can feel like a burden at times. But I think also we all have to remind ourselves what the core is of what we're about, whether we have a building or not, and whether our pastors wear vestments or not, and whether we um, have a particular kind of Christian education program or whether we always have a particular fundraiser every year. All of those sorts of things can be wonderful, but they can cease to be wonderful or and can become more of a burden and a distraction when we lose sight of why we're doing any of it. And so growing up in the community of Christ, for me, it was fairly clear most of the time. I don't want to make it sound like we were perfect. Of course we were not. But I came from my childhood into my college experiences with church and into the 20 years since and being a lay leader and then becoming a pastor, I came to all of that from a core of, oh, what this is really about is people following Jesus together with other Christians and other people, even if they're struggling with their faith, even if they have more questions than, than things they can hang on to, getting together every week and preferably more than once a week, but really sharing life together and being messy and having an incarnational faith. That was what this is really about. And the rest of the stuff can serve that or not. But the community of Christ taught me the core of Christianity uh, in a really beautiful way that I have held on to um, to this day. And that makes me still want to be a pastor at a time when, you know, it's a real struggle for so many of us to stay in ministry. And I have so much compassion for so many of my colleagues who need to take a break or maybe step into a different career. But that that foundation that I have, the formation that I had in the community of Christ has really sustained me. Well, Celeste Kennel Shank, I loved 
your book, What You Sow is a Bear Seed. It the story that you tell of the community of Christ was so rich and so thoughtfully assembled from the stories and the archives and the heart of this community. I had never heard of it before, and I felt at the end of your book like I knew these people and I had a warm relationship with them. I want to thank you for the time that it took to research this book and to pull it together and to write it. And I want to thank you especially for taking the time today to talk about it with me and my guests. You're so welcome. And thank you so much for saying that. We've been speaking today with Celeste Kennelshank. She's a bivocational pastor and journalist in Chicago. She's a graduate of the D.C. public school system, Goshen College, the Medill School of Journalism, and the University of Chicago Divinity School. Her writing has appeared in The Christian Century, Sojourners, and The Washington Post, among other publications. Today we've been talking about her recent book, What You Sow is a Bear Seed, a countercultural Christian community during five decades of change. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.